we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hey, welcome to today's episode. It's a really good one. Hey, Sam, how are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Hannah. Bit of an overcast day, but it's a great week and even more excited for this podcast. Yes, today we're talking to Sarah. Welcome. Thanks so hey, much Sarah. for having me. Hi. Welcome on. So excited to be here. That's awesome. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So like we always first up ask, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Zealand. You can tell from the very strong accent I haven't managed to lose. So I grew up in Wellington and my dad was in the army. So we traveled around quite a lot during my childhood. And then I went, I moved to Auckland for a majority of high school, uh, which is in the North Island and then decided to study speech therapy. So moved to Christchurch in the South Island. And after a couple of years of working, I thought I'd go on my OE. So my plan was to go overseas for three months and 19 years later, I have still not returned to New Zealand, um, but I went over to the UK. So thought I would be there for three to six months, do a little bit of traveling, loved traveling. I got really, yeah, just got so much out of learning about life and culture and people and met a man along the way. Um, so we ended up being in Scotland for eight years over there working as a speech therapist of all things, which my first job was in a little fishing town way up in the north where they still speak Gaelic and Doric. Oh, wow. Um, so they didn't understand me. I didn't understand them. Um, I didn't know if I needed to see them for speech because I couldn't tell what they were saying, um, but absolutely loved it and um, then ended up in Australia. Yep. So one of the consultants from PA Hospital came to the unit I worked in in Glasgow, which was a specialist brain injury rehab unit, and said, we have a unit in Brisbane and would love a speechy that's got your experience to come. So we decided on a whim to move to Australia and that's how we've ended up here. Oh, well, we're very happy to have you. Thanks. Well, we, we, had, um, we Googled when we were deciding on whether to come or not and we Googled and saw that the winters in Australia were warmer than the summers in Edinburgh, where we actually lived. So it was a no-brainer. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> su- I'm such a sunshine girl. I, yeah, I can't believe I managed eight years in Scotland, but loved it, loved the culture, loved the adventure of life over there. But yeah, Queensland's now home. Although we only came for 12 months. My timeframes are not good. I was like, right, we're going to go do 12 months in Australia and then we'll move back to New Zealand and we're coming up 11 years. So clearly I should not put timeframes on things. (laughs) (laughs) Just gets extended by another three or four or five years. It does, yes, yeah. Yeah. No, that's an awesome story. I love how you sort of um, progressed from New Zealand over. And then, then how did you manage speech pathology in a predominantly Gaelic speaking environment? Uh, it was so the first, I remember taking the train um, from London up to, it was a place called Peterhead up the Aberdeen coast. And it was a Sunday afternoon and there was a group of guys next to me. And I remember talking to them and saying, oh, are you from Europe? You, you sound Russian. Oh, no, pal, we're from Peterhead. And I was was like, okay, so this is going to be the accent. So I, because nobody had met a Kiwi over there, um, so my my accent stood out. So if I used to go and get Chinese on a Friday night, you'd go in and people would say, oh, you must be Sarah. Oh, you're seeing my neighbours, you know, granddaughter. Oh, you know, you you just became known to people. There was, when I started, I had 103 on my caseload. So they hadn't had an adult speech pathologist for three years. So I had 103 um, to work towards. It was was quite a caseload. 
And the first day I went and met this beautiful old lady and um, you know, I said to her, oh, you know, my name's Sarah and it talked a little bit about me and she sort of looked at me with a you know, sort of I'm not quite understanding you and I said, oh, do you have any children? And she's like, I also got a loon. And I was like, oh, I said, oh, you know, my I had an auntie and when she was born she had significant brain damage and you know, I guess there's lots of labels people call, you know, different people that have additional needs and she's sort of looking at me even more strangely at this point and I just kept talking I was like slow your speech down Sarah obviously it's your rate of speech she's not understanding and you know kept talking did the session left went to the next house and said oh you know making small talk do you have any children I alas got a loon I was like okay I don't know what this word is but I think I have misunderstood what a loon is in this country (laughs) and it turns out a loon is a son so <laughs> no wonder everyone looked at me strangely. But my whole time, this, these are these are yeah the adventures I had when I then went to work in a care of the elderly ward in the hospital. I remember you know you're doing sort of acute stroke and so you're just making sure people can understand the basics. You know, point to the window, point to the door, point to your bed. And I had this dear lady say to me, oh, lovey, can you see it? My daughter normally tweezes it out. And I was like, no, your bed, your bed, you know, your bed. Oh, can you see it? Are the whiskers coming through? And I was like, no, you, no, your bed, you're, you're bad, you're bad. And so from that time on, I spoke an English accent for all of my assessments. So I was not offending anybody with their facial hair instead of a bed. So, so yeah, I used to transition between this, this accent and then my... English accent for all of my assessments and my therapy. <laughs> so for seven years, I was Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So what what made you want to get into, I guess, speech pathology and the disability sector? Yeah, so my auntie, like I said before, when she was born, the doctor was drunk that delivered her and so caused significant amount of brain damage to her. And my grandparents lived in a really rural farming community in New Zealand and they were told to forget they had a daughter, put her into an institution and she'd be dead before she was two. And they didn't. She grew up on the farm. She was active on the farm. She went to school. She lived a great life. She made the Special Olympics for bowling. Um, She travelled. She loved life. She died at 72. So she got 70 years on what they predicted. But I think growing up, watching her you know, be different, speak differently, act differently, and the way people would react to her just lit a fire in me. Then my grandma, when I was eight, had a stroke. And because she was from the small community, they didn't have speech therapists. And I remember she could you could tell she could understand what we were saying and we devised this sort of squeeze-your-hand communication for her last week of life and again just remember thinking surely there's someone that does this for a job that can help people like this and when I was looking for um, you know what to do for a career I went to a careers festival and on the back of a bookmark was speech and language therapy and I didn't really know about it um, but found out more and I thought oh, this is it so when went into speech wanting to do pediatric speech did my first placement with children and realised very quickly that <laughs> paediatric speech was not for me. Um, but in my final year, discovered stroke and brain injury rehab and swallowing. Love complex swallowing. So got to do research when I graduated in the, the swallowing world, um, get some articles published and just, yeah, loved. It was just just me. It just resonated with me. It fitted like the way my ethos and um, what I loved doing. So my first job was in the community. And so right from the get-go, community just had my heart. Um, just the functionality of it and the fact that they're not a, a standalone person in a hospital bed or in a hospital gown. And you get to, you know somebody when you walk into their home. Like it's such a privilege and I've always said it, it's such an honour to enter someone's home and we work, you know, we live in countries where you can do this. Many countries we don't have that opportunity. And you get to see who they are and their roles. And I think that's that's so important in the essence of, you know, the rehab supports I used to give, you know, as a speechy was who who are you and what makes you you and what you know, not just you in isolation, but your community, your family, your things that matter. So I, yeah, that was always my heart from the onset. This community. So, 
Yeah. So I guess the and I love I think that's the thing I love when you meet people in the sector. So many people have a story and we have a heart for why we do what we do. And there's a real reason behind what we do, which makes an incredibly special sector. Yeah, I love hearing people's why. Yes, it's, yes. It's the, I mean, and that's the essence of this podcast. You know, we always have people's why and that's, that's why that question, yes, you know, yes. because it's yeah. so important to understand, to understanding the person is understanding their why. Yes. So what do you do now? So now I, at the moment, I'm the regional manager for Ignite. So before Ignite, I was at Queensland Health and was working in the unit that dealt with all the catastrophic brain injuries of Queensland. So they were with us for quite a long time, having extended rehab. Was not looking to change from Queensland Health until my husband found David Dinker's job ad for Ignite. And I watched it seven times in a row. And thought I've never seen something so funny. It was based off the office and was just this brilliant spoof about recruitment. And I think, you know, when you think about recruitment, it's always the close pan ups and the serious, you know, come and work for Ignite Healthcare. We provide you with, you know, that just that the commercial that's the, line. Yeah, the yeah. message that everyone gives. And it was just completely different. You know, I think he started off with, you know, perks. We've got perks coming out of the wazoo. I mean, look at this unlimited water and turned on the tap and I was just it was just something in me at that point was like oh just a place you can be yourself so interviewed for the role the next day as a team leader speech pathologist and got that role so came across and after a couple of weeks David said to me have you ever thought about doing business development you'd be a natural at that and I had to Google what business development was because I'm a clinician. I <laughs> haven't done that. I don't know what he meant by that. Um, luckily, I've watched seasons and seasons of The Apprentice. So have some <laughs> business acumen uh, <laughs> just by watching The Apprentice. Have watched The American and The English. So, you know, feel I'm well-versed internationally uh, to comment on this. Yep, are, yeah. are a good, good thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, that's my... Uh, <laughs> But coming in, you know, looking at business development, and yes, I mean, I love people. I love meeting people. I love connecting people. It's it, yeah, it is the thing that brings me so much joy. But also as a clinician, getting that ability to help shape a business that is going to foster a place where clinicians can grow and thrive, and you know, listen, listen to the market. So. So I came in, did, did team leader speech, did business development, and then we did a restructure, and I was privileged enough to become re regional manager for Queensland, which I've done this year. And then David Dinker, <laughs> who uh, has all the good ideas, um, said to me, I think that you would be great in a position as director of growth. And the idea would be that you get to use all of your skills and all of the things that you are really good at and that you, you know, are passionate about. Um, and bring them together for Ignite, um, not just Queensland, but for both states. And so Director of Growth um, will just be a, really about listening, being sensitive to the needs, sensitive to the needs of the clinicians and sensitive to the needs of the market and merging the two together. And the needs of clinicians is really dear to my heart because this is a sector where there is a incredibly big turnover. It's, an, it's a very fast turnover and we are losing great people. And so looking at how as businesses and as an organisation, we can ensure that the clinicians that we have are thriving and growing and wanting to remain in the disability sector. And I often say if clinicians leave Ignite, my heart is that they don't leave disability. They stay within disability, find somewhere else that they can call home, find, their, find a different tribe but stay within disability because there is there is much need, but there is, there is so, so many rewarding moments and life-changing moments and impactful moments that we make um, along the way as clinicians. And so that's my heart, to really think how we can do things differently. And, I mean, one of our OTs, she had, by July, 12 of her classmates had left their first jobs, and that's a really short turnover. And I think, you know, working, I mean, I've had 20 years working as a speechy and I've never seen such high turnover as what I have here. And that was one thing when I started was, well, what, what's not working? 
What's mm. not working? How can we do things differently? There are complexities in caseloads. There are there is travel involved. But how can we create a culture that embeds what clinicians need to feel that they're growing within themselves? Create a culture of support. You know, have have a place where they can be themselves. And I think that's part of it as well. Sometimes you you study to become a clinician and you feel that you have to be a certain mold. And it was the thing that, that drew me to the to the recruitment ad for Ignite was just that freedom to be yourself. And when you when you're yourself, you're your best self. You know, you are yeah. you are your authentic self and that shines through. And that's when you can build rapport with people and get to know them because you're not you're not operating in this fear of who I should be or who I need to be. You are just being you. And, and through that brings freedom. And it brings, you know, that allows the people you're working alongside to, to do the same and to be themselves. So I'm really excited about yeah, just the ideas. It keeps spouting um, of all the things that we can do just to, yeah. to really make sure that people feel that they are, you know, in a, in a space where they are growing and where we're delivering what we say we do. I'm very big on, you know, not gaslighting. I think there's a lot of shininess I often say to to new grads when I meet them you guys are the chips on the beach and there are seagulls circling and there is a lot of squawking and there's a lot of um, shiny packages that are put together about what can be on offer and the the hard thing is that that's not followed through with necessarily or that they are told one thing you know there might be a great new grad program but they failed to Get that information that's only six weeks and so then actually you will be stepping up to quite a higher more complex caseload and that's where we're seeing this burnout and the cycle of clinicians leaving and you know when I came into Ignite and just learned about this turnover I just remember thinking I would love to create a place and a space where a support coordinator can ring nine months later and say hey really need a, an FCA done. Julie did a great job last time. Is she still there? And we us be able to say, yeah, she is. She is. And just, yeah, just have that stable workforce because the participants are the ones that benefit out of this. Yeah. Otherwise, they're having to learn new names, new people, you know, how to relate to this person. How the family has to learn about this new clinician as well. And it's, you know, I met somebody the other day, we did the Disability Expo recently, and they had had seven OTs. They've had seven OTs so far this year. That's and crazy. I just thought, how, how can you, all that funding that is being utilised by initial session after initial session and nothing is then actually happening and there's no continuation of therapy. And nobody's getting the best out of out of things. So so that's my biggest heart for that side of it. And then stakeholders and people and those that we engage with for Ignite, they have answers. We just have to listen and be sensitive to that and be willing to take on feedback. You know, we, we do not do things perfectly by all means. And I'm yet to meet anybody that does. But, you know, I want feedback. I want to know what we could improve on. I want to know how we can improve processes. I want to know what's missing. I want to know where gaps in the market are. So, I mean, for example, last year, my kids go to a school um, in the Redlands and I helped run a play group. And at the school, so many parents were saying to me, oh gosh, your allied health, we've been on wait lists for months and months. It's so hard to get anybody. And when we do, they leave really quickly. Or we have to take annual leave to take our kid out of school, go to the session, come back. It's an afternoon of annual leave and it's an afternoon, you know, my child's been out of the classroom. And so I went to the principal and said, would there be any way that we could maybe come and set up a collaboration where we come into the school and provide OT and speech. And that way, the the children are not having to leave school. You're not having to take any leave. You know that they're in a safe environment, in a safe place. And for those children that have additional needs, we can help you as a family look at early childhood funding, what's available there. We can help you look at whether the NDIS might be warranted and, and assist with that because a lot of the time it's just too overwhelming so we just don't even try. And we can actually have a collaboration where therapy is not just for half an hour, but the teachers can then be 
debriefed about what things they could implement in the classroom. And that's not going to benefit just one child in the class, it's going to benefit all of them because the whole class is now learning about interception and how to read my body cues. And the whole class is learning about brain breaks and how to get the best out of you know, learning and the, the way that my body needs to be to be able to be in a state of regulated emotions to, to be able to take information on. Um, and it's worked brilliantly and it's things like that. I just, I love innovation and just seeing where the gaps are and what we can do. So how long has that help. program program been running for now? So all year this oh, year wow. awesome. and we'll continue next year. That's great news. Yes. So yeah. is that, is that a sort of, how did you get established that program? So we just, I initially thought, oh, the therapist might go in once a month for a day. And then once we sort of put the word out to parents, um, we started getting more and more referrals. And so now our OTs are there twice a week and so are the speeches. Oh, wow. And then what was brilliant, and I just, I love this, you know, and I, th- and I think we're, you know, we're seeing an increase in need across all classrooms with children. And they realised as a school that the, the needs are classroom-wide, as with all schools. And so they've actually got our paediatric OT to go in on a Monday. So for two terms, she's been going in and spending a day with the classroom and talking through the needs of that classroom and how they're modelling to the teachers how they can balance the needs of wow, the class. Wow, that's quite an interesting resource things. for the teacher yes. and such a benefit for the yes. kids. That's awesome. Yes. So it's been wonderful. I've loved seeing that work. Have there been any real like um, corresponding outcomes from the whole class as a whole in terms of participation, engagement? And... Yes, yes, yep. So they, so many parents, when I go into the school grounds, I just get parents stop me <laughs> and just say, oh my goodness, this has worked so Favourite well. Favourite person in the school Nomination for president next year. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> but I just, I think, you know, and, you know, parents would come to me and say, oh, you know, this seems like a lot of money that you're charging because we keep our rates the same yep. a- across this, you know, the spectrum because why should it be that somebody on the NDIS is penalised because they're on the NDIS compared to other people? So, and I said, yes, it is. And I have, abs- you know, do not feel like you need to use Ignite just because we're on the school grounds, but we are here. And the idea is that we're going to have a true collaboration happening. Um, and it's been lovely hearing those parents come back and say it has been worth every cent we've invested in this. And I think just, you know, my, my, one of my, my son's class has 18 boys in it. So there's a lot of testosterone. There's a lot of energy going on in that class. But the school have made adaptations for that. And so maths is now whole body movement and learning. And we're finding that kids are in the classroom for longer without needing to be out outside and being taken out to be regulated. They can be regulated within the classroom environment um, or need short periods outside before they can then integrate back in. So that's a huge win for those teachers that, you know, do have children. And, you know, it is a balancing act because it's not only this, you know, we've got one end of the bell curve where there are additional needs, but there's always another end of the bell curve where there are those extension needs. And so, you know, they're managing this whole remit of children and need to be able to do that do that well. And so, I, you know, I'm, I always love hearing when our clinicians can get into schools and it's hard. It's hard to get into schools. There's so many that, mm. that you know, the barriers go up for allied health. And I'm, I'm which, saying, which no, no, we really can come and help. With the, like, the clear outcomes that are for both the, the students getting receiving the education, the uh, educators providing that education, yes. Yes. the school community as a whole, parents. Yes. Um, in a couple of episodes back, we we're talking about uh, the NDIS and re- review and the Royal Com- Disability Royal Commission, and some yes. of the commissioners push around going or removing special needs schools. Yes, yes. And we have, we sort of have a. We don't know where we sit on. I think I think is the, the end point is where we, we're coming from. But the more that we could see of this, starts to then push a pathway. Yes. To. Yes. That because I think also by educating the whole uh, student base or the class base also yes. gets them to understand the people that might need those more supports yes. a yes. lot better as well and how to engage and that that sort yes. of breaks down the the stigma and yeah. uh, negative yes. sort of vibrations that kind of have been institutionalized or embedded institutions which is this is fantastic I'm loving it yes yes and that's the thing it's not just one kid has to go and do some weird exercises that the rest of the class watches. The whole class is doing them. So it's Mm. just normal. It's just normal. And then, you know, 
you think about the stigmas, like you say, that kids have when they, there's a, a diagnosis attached. You know, we see that frequently as parents are really reluctant to get a diagnosis made on their child because they don't want them labelled and they don't want them to be different. Um, and it's about saying, no, that this is, you know, it, it's not for those purposes, but it's so we can identify those needs and provide those supports because they're out there. And, you know, like you think about early childhood, the early childhood approach, so many people don't know it exists. And, you know, they think, oh, well, we need this diagnosis. We need, we're on a wait list for a pediatrician for two years. No, 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 no. Just from what you can say as a parent will be enough to be able to access that funding. And there's a real lack of um, information out there for people to be able to understand how they can engage. And, you know, that it's, it's certainly not about shaming and diagnoses and labels, but it is about being able to reduce stigma and peer you think about peer support and the power of peers and you know within that school setting they just they just become part of the class then they're mm. not they're not a child with additional needs and one of, one of my daughter's teacher the other day said it's been one of the things that they have loved and she's in prep so you know littleies you know these brains are not developed yet but when someone has big feelings, the rest of the class just get on with it. And it's not nobody sits and stares at someone having big feelings and these big moments because it's just part of what you have in the class. And I love hearing things like that because the people that we're supporting have big feelings. Mm. They have big moments. They have it all, all behavior as a way of communicating. When your locus of control becomes very small, then you will try and control what you can in the way that you can control it. And often that is the way that you use your body or you use your voice and you use your actions because that is all you've got to control in that mo moment. And for these little people, that's you know what they can do. And so if we can come in from this beautiful holistic approach and collaborate and work together, and that you know that, that's always my word is collaboration and working together alongside these, you know, these participants, how can we make this easier for them? How can we make it easier for these parents? So many parents, it's not just one child. They might have two or three that are needing to access clinicians and therapy. And how do you make that work? And how do you make it work when you've, what, you need to work and get a job and you've got a rent to pay and there's after school care? You know, there's all of these things that are going on constantly for them. And this is not just one day of it. This is day in, day out. And so how can we support those parents? Like what supports do they need? What help do they need? And I have to say that's one of my stories of this year from our clinician. We had a new grade OT start and in the session they got spat on. It was one of the first sessions they got spat on. And I was over on Russell Island at a at an event and got a phone call. And, you know, in those situations, you generally expect them to say, oh, I'm not seeing that person again, or, you know, that was, this is really frightening. You know, and, you know, that's what you sort of go into that phone call thinking. And the first thing they said to me was, this family needs help, Sarah. What else can we do for them? It's not just the child. The parents need help. What can we do? And I loved that. That's, I'm just like, this response. is the way we need to yeah. be seeing that because, again, all behaviours, communication, and, you know, that's another thing that I just, I'm really passionate about in the sector is new graduates often get such a bad rep and it's such a bad rap because, you know, they are, they are new, they're fresh. However, I say to people, they come with much more energy than I have. My goodness, <laughs> <laughs> much more energy <laughs> and knowledge. They've just learned all the latest all and the greatest stuff. <laughs> yeah. stuff. They know it. Um, and they're not marred by fatigue or you know compassion fatigue and burnout and you know if we if we have people and look there are absolutely you know complex cases where there needs to be clinicians of a certain level and caliber and experience and trauma-informed care and all of these sorts of things absolutely there's a place for it but um, if we can develop new graduates to be providing great care because we have an ecosystem of support around them they're going to flourish and so you know we have we have a 20 plus year experienced OT in the pediatric space who's worked in you know countries all around the world and done incredible things and she supervises our new grade OTs and I'll often walk into the office and they're all lying on the floor in the peds room with resources out talking about what they've done great wins for the week how they can think about using these things differently within the space tips and tricks for the trade and those sorts of things. And I love seeing that because sometimes think I've got some wisdom to pass down. But, you know, I've, I've had 20 years in the sector 
in providing therapy to people with neurological injuries. So, you know, I, I'm really confident in that space. Do not do not give me a child because I do not know what to do with a child. Please do not <laughs> make me see a child. But, you know, it's that experience and that sharing and that, yeah, empowering them that leads them to feel comfortable and confident to, to take that next step and to not then react when a child spits in your face, mm. but to say, hang on, I recognise there are needs and this is why I've done my training and this is why I am this person and what an honour it is to be able to help these these people out in their time of need. Yeah, I love to hear that someone coming into the sector has already sort of got that mentality because it's very quick that you sort of hear, oh, I had it, or you see on the Facebook groups, I had a participant do this, I can't deal with it or just sort of bailing at that first yes. trouble. Yes. I had a... um. We interviewed someone for our um, our organisation recently and the first thing, it was ask a question, how do you perceive failure or what is failure to you? Mm. And his response was failure to me was uh, giving up at the first fail- failure point. Mm-hmm. And I really love that in its whole, which is that yes. same mentality of, yes. well, something didn't work or there was a barrier, how do we work forward through it rather than giving up or finding something else entirely? Yes, Yes. Before you even try again. Yes, yes, yes. And that, and I think that's the thing. If you don't have the right supports, well, mm. then you feel like the only option is to give up because how do I get through this or, you know, how, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know the way, you know, that, that would have been a really easy scenario for that clinician to say, well, I haven't come to work to be spat on. I mm. don't know what to do you're not going to let me not see people like this, so this is not for me. Yeah. And Sounds now like they're, they're definitely coffee. taking but, you know, the training is... and going, ha- applying it to themselves, yes. going, well, this is how, how, what's the next yes. step? Yes. And, yeah. you know, like working in brain injury for years. So in, in Glasgow, I worked in a challenging behaviour unit. So that they were all the people that could not be placed anywhere in Scotland because they were so challenging. And when I first, when we started the unit, because I was sort of part of that induction of it, and so many of the staff would say, oh, I didn't come to work to be spoken to like that. And it was just that the constant mantra, I would say, part of their brain is missing and it's not coming back. They've not chosen this journey for them. And that's actually why we are here. We are here to, to be that part of their brain for them. And, you know, we're, I recognise that they've said something to you, but, you know, mm. again, this is why we're here. These are our jobs. We've chosen to be in this this place. Yeah, and especially that's in that space yes you, you, you're going to be confronted with this day in day out oh that that unit was yeah that unit was brilliant but again <laughs> I have to say it all came down to to communication behaviors were communication but yes it was I I had real mace in my pocket and that yeah at that unit not in it not at the workplace but to get to it it was the roughest of the rough area in Glasgow and so when I took that job that was my husband's request that I carry mace <laughs> with me <laughs> So I did. I'm just thinking back to what you said about being able to get into that school because so many of the Mm. schools that I've spoken to, either for my participants, for my own children, refuse to have Allied Health come in and they're like, oh, it's a privacy issue. And I'm like, but you can, the teachers can learn so much from the Allied Health professionals. And... I don't understand why you won't do this. Well, no, ch- I would no. definitely challenge the it's a privacy issue. There's, paperwork can be established to deal with these legalities. Oh, there's a lot of, we, I mean, when we go on site, you should see the paperwork. I think one of the speeches the other day, she said it was 37 pages she had to read through to agree to, to enter the school for a 45-minute session. Um, so they, they certainly don't make it easy. But you're right, like I, you know, Teachers, teachers struggle and they, they have 24, 28 children to manage in that space. And it's the ones that we work, it's our, our participants that need to have their needs highlighted and focused on and resourced. You know, like it's really easy things that, you know, we see, that, that's how we see things. We th- see things from a therapeutic disability lens and so a child might need a sensory bucket full of fidget toys or you know these things or a bodysuit and they might need gentle calming activities and this other child in the class needs active calming strategies and so how do you amalgamate all of these things unless you're on site and I think this is you know when you're decontextualizing therapy which 
when we work in the community, you think, oh, this is great because we're going to get to see them in their environment and we get to learn about them. But if we're going into a scenario, you know, if we're not allowed into a school, we don't see them in their environment. We don't see them, how they're interacting with the classroom. How are they learning? How are they engaging in that learning space? And it makes it really tricky to be able to, to put things in place because when you, whenever you transport a child out of that environment into a you know, false environment, and a, then you're just not seeing the same things. You know, I love telehealth for that reason, that you can just, you know, when, when we're engaging with families in telehealth, you can flick that iPad on and turn it around at dinner time and watch the chaos that unfolds in, in the house and see where those behaviours come. Because, well, what again, what locus of control is that tri- child trying to control in this environment and what antecedents and happen before the behaviours, you can watch the whole picture and so then it's easy to look at, okay, well, these are the things that we need to address because it's leading to this and these are then the consequences. And so it's it's really nice and clear cut. But again, it, you know, that telehealth is it's that transporting into that home in an instant and getting to see that whole picture, um, which, which I love. And I think there's so much benefit to that. It's quite a benefit that I hadn't thought of in terms of like the out, the use and practicality of telehealth. Yes. Because yes. it's not like you're going to yes. go to someone as a, 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 a client's home at 6pm at night no, and watch it for dinner. No, 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 but you can do that. And I mean, that was one thing when I started at night, you know, talking to David and him just saying there's there's so much need in rural communities. And then just seeing it, I mean, I know for us, you know, even for me with Queensland Health, when some of our patients would be discharged out to places like Roma, I knew they weren't going to get assistance um, because there's no one there. I mean, Russell Island is a great example. We, I had people that came for that have months of therapy in this inpatient unit and then be discharged there and not have any speech because nobody would go there. So one of my first things when I started Ignite um, and met some of the people in the sector that said, you know, the Morden Bay Islands, no one goes to them. And I was like, well, we shall go. <laughs> like, why, why should someone be penalised because they choose to live on Russell Island? Why should someone not get help because they're living on the clay? Like, it's hmm. not okay. It's so close and yet, you know, it's viewed as this different world and, you know, the, the reason I got told, well, you know, we it's a business loss, it's a profit loss. Because it costs so much money to get on the ferries to get out there and then h- how do you recoup that cost for getting out there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, yes. it is a genuine issue. Yes, it is, yeah. And so I guess, you know, I was like, okay, BD brain on. Well, we just need to let people know. We need to meet the people that are out there, meet support coordinators that are servicing these islands and then see if they've got more than one participant out there or can we go out and do an initial face-to-face and then do telehealth as follow-up. You know, there are ways and means around it. Can we? Can they come, you know, we used to be in Green Slopes for our office and we moved to Capalaba because I thought, well, we're seeing, you know, this great need on the islands and Capalaba, Victoria Point, Redlands, that's where they're coming to if they're coming to the mainland. So then they could come to the clinic. Um, so how can we try and make things as accessible as they can? And, you know, choice and control needs to be what we are delivering in our service delivery models as well. So, you know, people can have that choice of tally or face-to-face or a hybrid or how can we make that work? Um, but, yeah, you're right. Like it, it's And it's got to be bigger than the revenue loss that you might make for a couple of people and look at the the impact we're making in lives because that's, that's why we're here. This is our business. This is our business of enriching lives, empowering abilities. Absolutely. Yeah. I get so frustrated when some providers talk more about revenue and how to see a profit. And I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to you anymore. No. <laughs> because no. that feels gross to yes. me. Yes. I mean, I have to make a living and I understand that. But there's a point at which you're going too far to see a profit. Yes. And that this isn't the sector to make a profit out of. No. You're not Coles. No, no, no. (laughs) Stop it. No. So do you want to tell us a few stories of being a speech pathologist? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, the the unit I worked in in Glasgow, so it being a challenging behaviour unit, we had 25 beds. So five beds were for extreme behaviours. So we wore alarms that had sensors on them at all times so people knew we were in the units. 
Um, and then the other 20 beds was for just challenging behaviour. So we had three locked doors to get through to enter the unit. It almost sounds like a prison. It, it, well, yeah, it was, there, was, there was a lot of restrictive practice <laughs> paperwork that needed to be done constantly. Wow. We had one one gentleman who used, there used to be a courtyard between these two units, so the 20-bed unit and the five-bed unit. And he was out having a cigarette one day and decided that he he thought he was being held hostage. So to his credit, he had mobility issues. He had you know major speech issues, but he went and found a pen and paper, wrote a note and passed it through the window to somebody in the five-bedded unit to say, call the police, I'm being held hostage. We didn't know any of this was happening. The guy in the five-bedded unit had had a few life skills he'd acquired along the way, so managed to pickpocket one of the workers' phones out of their, their pocket. And we were sitting in a team meeting on a Tuesday morning and look up to see SWAT team. Glasgow police SWAT team outside with guns pointed at the windows and the sound of a helicopter above us. And he had managed to make the phone call and I was like, full credit to these guys. This is fantastic (laughs) problem solving. They have thought this through. They have made a plan. This is great initiation. And his speech was clear enough that he got to make a phone call to the police to ask them to come. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) So we used to have things like that happen. We had in front of the unit, there was a KFC, which was a KFC. Then there was a, a laundromat, which was used as a trafficking front and then there was a garage and the guys in the garage used to sell our um, participants drugs and so they would go and get their newspaper their morning newspaper and buy drugs and then bring them back to the unit then they'd plant them somewhere in the unit but they had major memory issues so then the dealers would turn up through the three doors and not the participants would not remember where they had stashed the drugs. And so then we'd have to call the police to bring the dogs in to find the drugs before we had the dealers pull out a knife. And there was a, it used to be called the Glasgow smile with a slash your cheeks. And so, you know, that was quite a normal, quite a normal thing to have. So, um, so yeah, it was certainly an eye opener. Um, that explains the pepper spray. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the guys that came to us from, we had big tenement houses across the road from us. It was all sort of tenement, really, really low socioeconomic houses, overcrowding, you know, just sort of all of that, that sort of stuff. And Ross Kemp is a guy who does documentaries around the world. He's a he's a British guy. And um, I love his introduction one day was, you know, I've been to the heart of the Amazon and I've dealt with tribes in this place, but Glasgow was the most frightening of them all. <laughs> and he, he interviewed one of our guys that actually ended up in the unit from because a lot of them were drug-related assaults. So 77% of the people that we saw had addiction issues and complex mental health as well. So they just sort of all went hand in hand. And this one guy, when they'd gone in to meet him in his house, you know, hoarding just you know it was just it was a really sad situation that he was living in and Ross went to meet him and he said oh do you want to he said yeah I've been having a bit of trouble with my diabetes which is actually how he ended up with his brain injury and he said yeah my toes just keep turning black so I just pop them off and put them on a jar on the tv do you want to see (laughs) the camera pans to this jar on the tv with some blackened gangrenous toes on them so yeah so that that's what um (laughs) That's what I'd come from when I moved to Australia. So my my first day in the unit here, I mean, like I'm, you know, we're used to full on control. I mean, I had my jaw broken by somebody who oh had a goodness. psychotic break and thought I was his daughter. Um, and it was the one day my emergency alarm didn't go off, so I couldn't get anyone to help me. Oh, no. I had a, you know, fire hydrants thrown at our heads. We had everything used to be bolted down and anti ligature. And we had one guy who who pulled up a park bench that was bolted into the concrete and throw it through the office window. So, you know, that that just par for the course. Normal day. Just normal day. Normal day in Glasgow. So when I moved here, my first day at work, they said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. We've got someone who's really challenging. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Had a few years of this now. I'm good to go. Sleeves um, up. Yeah, yeah. ready, Ready to roll, guys. Ready to roll. And I was like, oh, what happens? And they're like, well, the other day he peed into a teapot. And I was like, okay, yep. And they're like, mm, no, that, that, that's it. <laughs> I was like, 
but that was good forethought. Like he problem solved and thought this is a contained vessel. This was not into a rubbish bin where it, you know, leaked everywhere with like and they're like, nobody's very, very challenging. And I was like, okay, this is yeah, we're taking it down a level. <laughs> we're taking it down a level here. I'm um, glad you took it down a level by coming to Brisbane. Yes. Like I <laughs> Brisbane was down a level. Well, it it kind of just yeah. makes me yeah. it makes me think sometimes is like how do we perceive very extreme situations versus what actually yes. is well, you know, an extreme situation? True, For them, that was really challenging. That was a really mm. challenging person that they, you know, they were really struggling with. And yeah, it's made me think of that a lot. And I, you know, when you hear, I hate hearing the term behavioral. Mm. That's a real trigger word for me because I'm like, what do you mean behavioral? Like, no, what are they telling you? They are, they are, their behaviours are telling you something. They're not just choosing to be behavioural. And, you know, we, we work in a sector where there are complex people that have complex needs and, and complex things to communicate. And so I don't want to hear the term behavioural all the time because that's not what it's about. And I, I love that PBS and positive behaviour support is becoming something that is, is a highlight now and is a need, you know, because we we have participants that need those additional supports and mm. psychology, you know, coming in alongside things. And, I mean, the other day I met a behavioural optometrist and I haven't even heard about behavioural optometry, but to the extent of what um, she was saying she can help support people with ADHD and, and ASD in terms of what they can do alongside OTs. And, like, I mean, it's thing, this is this new job. It's going to be just so exciting for these reasons because how can we then develop, you know, a great toolkit that we deliver to people we, we are seeing and working with and then just making sure that people we see have had an eye test from a behavioural optometrist not just at Specsavers, but, you know, actually somebody that understands it. Although, you know, nothing wrong with Specsavers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we still love Specsavers. I, I, st I still do use Specsavers. Just a, yeah, just a little <laughs> adjunct in there. Um, but, you know, how can we look at, at that broader picture? We next door to where the office is, we have play therapists. And I met with them the other day and they're coming to speak to our team next Tuesday. And the toolkits that they use and the lens that they see things through is such a beautiful um, adjunct to OT and speech. And so how, you know, it's collaboration. How can we work together in this space? And I, you know, when I started with Ignite and in the sector, I think that was one of the things that struck me, A, the, the high turnover of clinicians, but also support coordinators, which says a lot about caseloads complexity. More KPIs in, and, in, and in billables, my yes. humble opinion, because... The KPIs at some companies can be just beyond what can physically actually be done yes. in a day. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that turns a lot of people away from the sector. Even I had a conversation once with a physio who was talking about how they worked for one of the big companies. Yep. And they had to bill even for the time if they had to stop on the way to someone's house to go to the toilet or something, all of that time was still billable. And he just was like, I hated it because to me that was not ethical. Yes. And yes. so what happens is you either get people like me and like that person who go stuff y'all, I'm going out on my own, or you get yes. people who go, oh, clearly this is what it is. And I don't like it, yes. so I'm leaving the sector altogether. And I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. I think there's that, that mm. oh, gosh, everyone else seems to be coping. Why am I not coping? Yes. It's obviously a me problem, so I'm going somewhere else. But it, but you're right. And billables, billables are huge. They're huge for us and, you know, allied health. It's one thing, you know, and that's one thing I've loved with Ignite. We offer the lowest billables for new graduates that I've heard of in the sector and for a year. You come in and you've got a year. At that level, we are not going to expect you to jump up after six weeks because there is that recognition that this is your year of growth and not not just as a clinician, but, you know, a lot of them are in their first jobs. This is the first time you're having to turn up at a certain time every day. Like, this is a big thing. I have to, <laughs> I have to make a lunch every day. This is, you know, this is all new. But how can, how can we create these sustainable environments where people can, yeah, can grow and develop? And I think, 
it, it goes at loggerheads when you come in with the, you know, we're empathetic people and we have stories and we have these big hearts, but then you have a business to run. And so, I, yeah, that's that's what I've loved doing, I guess, as a clinician, how, how do we merge the two together and how do we make it work and not feel that we're dumping thing after thing on these clinicians that have complex caseloads. How can we, you know, I mean, we cover all of Brisbane. That's a big area and... You know, we take it on the head for unbillable travel. There's there's a lot of unbillable travel that happens, but there's need. And I got an old school map the other day. Didn't even know you could still buy them, but I found one and I've put it up on the wall at the office. And I was saying to the team the other day, this is where the greatest needs are on the on the far, the far north, south, east, west, because that's where people can afford to live. People cannot afford to live in the C B D and in the areas that are twenty minutes billable travel from an office because rent is what it is. The cost of living is what it is. And so that is why it's the outskirts of Brisbane that have the greatest need and so has the greatest travel. And so then it's about equipping clinicians to understand that, you know, there might be a bit more travel involved, but man, you get to listen to a podcast like this one (laughs) while you're traveling and you're being paid for it. And, you know, as a company, we absorb those other costs. Like that's part of what we do because we see the need is there. And rather than, yes, this whole, or, you know, clinicians that are expected to drive for two hours or, you know, sit in traffic for two hours. And so just, you know, really looking at how we're doing runs of things. And then I guess, you know, the BD side of me and, and looking at meeting those those people and support coordinators or organisations that might be based in, you know, say Ipswich. And so then if we have an OT that has a gap in their day, and when they're out west, being able to say, hey, do you have anybody that's got immediate need? Because we've got a space. And again, that comes down to that collaboration. So working together. And you know, so then that clinician is meeting their billables easily in a day and are not feeling like they're having to, to you know, you should never see two IKEAs in a day is my firm belief as a mobile <laughs> clinician. That is wrong if you are seeing two IKEAs in a day. Um, but just being able to... Um, you know, know that this is where I'm going this day. That brings a certain sense of relief. This company's got me and they're not expecting me to, to do all of this travel um, that becomes unreasonable and, and tiring. And so, you know, balancing big clinical days with days where you might be catching up on that paperwork and that admin and communicating, like, you know, communicating with support coordinators. I think, I, you know, I didn't understand this kind of, why, why do Allied Health not talk to support coordinators and what, why? And I just, and I think, you know, like there's been this um, feeling that you're at the mercy of a support coordinator because they're the ones that send the referrals. And, you know, I certainly, you know, it was a big journey for me learning actually, you no know, support coordinators are incredible people who, you know, to do over and above so often of what they do need to do because they want to make a difference in that life. And, they are there as a source of truth. They're also there as a source of being able to to get the information when we can't. It's a big machine. The NDIS is a very big machine. We don't have the names of planners. We might get a first name, but we don't have a contact number. We can't just email to say, hey, you know, just to clarify this. And, you know, support coordinators are stretched thin because they are being all things to a lot of people. But, you know, using them, working together. And again, you know, saying, hey, I've, I've sent this report off. Is there anything that I can do to change it? This is this is not me being offended. This is me humbly saying I don't get it right all the time. And you see a lot more reports than I do because you've got a lot more review meetings. So what's that feedback you've got for us? And how can mm. we do things differently? And again, that just working together and listening to each other. Collaborating. Collaborating. It's my favourite thing, Sam. <laughs> We know lots of people that like like the collaboration. Yeah, but it really is, and you know, and and getting rid of that competition. So, I mean, I remember I met um, John Kairos from Amend Rehab, and I met him at one of Karen's events, and just thought this is a really good guy, and he sounds like he's got a, a very similar ethos to me about a lot of things, and got talking to him and. I said to him, I would love to work with you because I have OTs that can't do certain things or don't have skill sets. And you have OTs that fill the gaps that we don't have. And you have physios and we don't. And you have we have speeches and you don't. And that's, you know, we've been pretty strategic here in Queensland. We've stuck with OT and speech and allied health assistance because I am a 
big believer that you can't be all things and do all things well. And I want to stay in a lane and I want to create this that ecosystem of support for OTs and the same thing for speech so that we're well resourced. We have the best PD opportunities for these guys so that we have great OTs and great speeches. And then we can use great physios from elsewhere or, you know, great psychologists from elsewhere. Hively Health, like I love them for their PBS and their psychologists. And I can say assuredly when people come to me and say, oh, you know, do you do PBS? No, I don't. But here are some names of other providers who think like we do and and have the same values we do. And I can say that with confidence. And so, you know, when I met John, it was just so lovely to just just find that person that instead of this being this competition and, well, you know, I, these referrals are mine, just getting consent, obviously, but just, you know, being able to say to people when they come to us, you know, for a, a complex home mods assessment and we don't have a clinician that can do that, instead of saying, yeah, we'll take them and then forcing that on a clinician who doesn't feel comfortable and confident and then, you know, they feel like they're a failure. And then, I mean, you're just never going to get anywhere good in that scenario, being able to pass that on to, to other providers. And I mean, and not wasting participants' not, money. Well, this is it. Because, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm a speechy, but if you give me a paediatric case, I don't know what <laughs> I'm doing. I can maybe look up something on the internet, like I would be doing what you were doing, probably. But, you know, there has to be, I, I'm, I'm, Pretty, I'm a very big believer in specialised caseloads within clinicians. Like we need clinicians that this is my jam. I can do this well. This is not. And so this is where I can pass this over. And I think historically in this space, NDIS clinicians have needed to be seen as generalists. And you should be a generalist. And I, I, there are some people that are generalists and do it well. And there are some of us that don't. Mm-hmm. But we do what we do well. And so, you know, finding those people, I, I want to have this database so that when someone calls me and says, I need a driving assessment, I can say, oh, I met this wonderful lady the other day called Jenny. She's here. She does this. She does this well. And I've got great feedback about her. Not, oh, yes, okay, yes, and put them on the wait list for us. Um, you know, it was one of one of the saddest things I have heard was when I met somebody and uh, you know, they own a speech practice and they had 200 on their wait list. And I was like, what are you doing with that wait list? And she said, oh, we'll get to them at some point. And I just thought, no, this is not what the sector needs. We need those to be, you know, who has capacity? Who in Brisbane has capacity to see some of these 200 children? Because, you know, the difference of three months, six months, nine months of them sitting on a wait list and the difference that will make in the longevity of their literacy and development, developmental skills and ability to engage in school is, is phenomenal. Hmm. It's definitely doing an injustice there. It really is, yes. So, yes. So, as, as you can hear, there's lots of <laughs> things I am very passionate about, um, but that's well, what I've loved. I'm is, really yeah. passionate about that idea of clinicians specialising myself, and I think support coordinators should do it as well. Yes, yes. And that's why I've also picked a specialisation. Yes, which and I love. It yes, it is very annoying to me when people are just generalists because you really can't be when there's so many components to, say, occupational therapy or so many components to speech therapy, you know, you can't do all of it. No, 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 you can't do it all well. And, you know, that's when you see provided set set up and, you know, you'll, you'll meet somebody and you'll say, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, we just ticked all the boxes. It's like, well, that that's not necessarily going to work out for anybody well um you know and I think let alone marketing for that business well (laughs) that's what I always think how do you fit all of that onto a flyer yeah just logistics of all of those words do you use do DL or do you use an A4 (laughs) that's an A3 man there's like at least two A3s let's let's just jump up and go an AO (laughs) (laughs) that's a banner that's a banner but it is true you know and 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 finding yeah finding that groove finding what I often, you know, the whole what makes your soul sing as a clinician. You know, when you walk away from a session that might have been hard, but you think, my goodness, I loved that. You know, like stay in there, sit in that space, learn all you can, absorb all you can about that that condition that, you know, whether it's neurological peds, whether it's articulation, you know, like whatever this is going to look like, find your place and own it and, and do it well and then teach others 
like pass it on, pass that knowledge on. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that is my hope that there will just be pockets of clinicians where we are working and we can say, no, that Parkinson's, that person with Parkinson's should go to this person because they do an exceptional job with those people with Parkinson's and they get the journey from diagnosis right through. Let's send them there rather than, oh, let's just put them on a wait list and hopefully they can be seen <laughs> at some point by somebody that might have read something about Parkinson's at some point. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So before we wrap up today, we have one question that we like to ask every all our guests, which is in your ideal world, what would the NDIS look like? Oh, collaboration. First of all, the collaboration and equality would be my two words. That collaborative space and the things we've talked about, working together, working, you know, I just I just see people standing shoulder to shoulder looking out rather than it's, yeah, just being a sort of, I don't know. No closing walls. Yes, yes, yeah. Collaboration between providers, collaboration within businesses as well. That's, you know, bringing in support coordinators, when you're in allied health, listening to what the market needs and providing those innovative ideas that aren't being necessarily met. Collaboration between providers looking at the needs of the population and how we can address those needs with the resources that we have, I think. And then that equality, I I think I would love to see some form of benchmarking for people that are making decisions around plans so that there is some health literacy attached to knowledge of what you are saying yes or no to. They can't, when you write a report, and you know, FCAs carry a lot of weight. They are the kingpin now going into reviews and funding is becoming less for the amount of hours OTs have to write them, which makes it tricky. But the other side is unless we're writing a good job and actually showing up the functional implications of not providing this therapy, then it's a missed opportunity because that shows up the inequality often. And we see we have plans that come through and people might have seven hours for an FCA and others you know, might have 49 hours for an FCA. And so I would love to see there being more understanding of needs at that planning level so that right decisions are made and I think part of that as well being mobile and majority of what we do is travel travel being recognized and that not being an area of inequality because Mm -hmm. if people want to have therapy in the home like there are businesses and so it costs money to do that there are also regulations in the NDIS which is great in terms of what we can and can't charge for but if somebody lives rurally and they're getting you know, 14 hours across a plan, how, how do we make that work? Whereas travel should just be a given. And, you mm. know, you know, even when you look at the MM1 to 5, I'm always astounded. I'm like, how is that MM1? Like, that is, that is really far out. Um, so, you know, just whether we look at a different way of being able to see where the, the servicing needs are. And, like I said, and even the when they are sort of in that higher MM sort of regional range, the funding doesn't necessarily change to reflect that. No, it doesn't. That. It really doesn't. I've seen some really weird really points doesn't. that just don't make sense, especially with how far out the participants are. Yes, yes. And, I'm, you know, like I said before, just because you choose to live somewhere should not mean you are penalised in terms of the, the resources that you get and the therapy you get. So, yeah, that'd be my two things. Collaboration, equality. With that travel time issue... A lot of clinicians will put, you know, have a table of we'll do this many hours of therapy, this many hours of assessment and this many hours of travel. Yes. And very often I've had a planner say, oh, well, we're not going to fund the travel because it's choice and control to get them to come out to you. You could have gone to them. And I get so frustrated with that because... It's, it is choice and control. Mm. I can choose to have them come out to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also there's parts in the pricing limits and pricing, pricing arrangements and <laughs> price limits document that says we can charge for travel. So why yes. put that in yes. and then a planner say, oh, no, we're not funding for the travel part. Yes. And the, the choice what? and yeah. control should be 
who they, which organisation they want to come out to them, not yes. just whether they want them to come. It should be, well, I've actually now got the choice of many providers coming to me. Mm. But, you know, even within that, you've got the choice of whether you charge just the travel or the travel plus kilometres. And so, mm. you know, there's... Well, it comes back to that original point that where you're saying mean? that you don't charge that, that the additional price just because it's an NDIS service. Yes, yes. It's just something it's just that I'm sure Bill Shorten and, is know, right on there with you. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I just think people have... You've got this pool of money and you've got to make it go so far. And so how can we do that? And that's what I, you know, that's my brain is always just thinking, how can we do that? So we've got allied health assistance because they are $82 an hour, not 193 an hour. And so our clinicians can go out, see somebody do an initial set up a program and plan, and then they get double the amount of therapy through an allied health assistant as they mm. will from a clinician. Smart, like, smart use of make, funding. Exactly. Like that's how I'm always like, right, what can we do? And I mean, I've always used AHAs in my jobs because yeah. that, you know, they are phenomenal people that get to carry out what we sort of set up um, and get to do that implementation. And I've loved seeing our clinicians at Ignite really utilise AHAs and see the benefit of them and the families see the benefit of it. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to say to them, mm. you guys will get twice as much therapeutic input from having an AHA. And, I mean, the therapist well, is still overseeing yeah, it. It it's, makes maximizes the clinician times. It maximizes exactly. the value for money exactly. out of it. Exactly. It has a massive impact overall. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's, yeah, that's how I see, you know, and, and – gone are the days of, well, we can go for a review and we'll get more money. Like there is yeah. no guarantee of that. So, you know, I'll often say to people, I look at what you get, you've got here and let's make this work because we've got to make this go as far as it can go with what you've told me you want to do in terms of building capacity and how we can utilize these funds. So things like AHAs, things like making sure runs are done in the same area. So there's minimal travel between people. Nathan Lack at Total Support Service has been amazing and given us an office to use in Logan. So we have an office there now that we he doesn't charge us for, um, which I love. And again, Plus his cotton socks. collaboration, Nathan. <laughs> thank you. Um, but it means that people down in that Logan area can access therapy without travel charges if they choose to go to the office there. We've in, Now in Capalaba, we have clinic rooms as well, so people can choose to save travel to come to us. Um, I'm going to look at out west where we can put offices so that we can have the same thing. So, again, choice and control. So it's not, well, I'm at the mercy of whether this LAC is going to approve funding for travel or not. Now I have some choice because I have an office space that's close by and I can choose to access that or have someone come to me. So, yeah, always just yeah, just trying to see how we can maximise things and, and make the most maximize of Maximise collaboration. Do That's right, <laughs> maximise, yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. Oh, thank it's you been for a having pleasure. me. I reckon we could have kept on talking for <laughs> yep, several yep. more hours. The speechy and me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's just, yeah, so lovely to meet like-minded people in the sector who just resonate well with, with what you think and, yeah, what we want to achieve together. Thank you so much. Huzzah! Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.